it's really the printing of um, the odd sac- the odd grant uh, by Ernest Trump. And this is described actually by 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 Virsi. Um, the translation and uh, of the Ad Granth um, and his use of the Janam Sakis in the beginning material for his translation, he translates a Bala version, which he found, and he has uh, was the was given what now we know as the Colebrook uh, manuscript, which didn't have um, Bala in it. So he translates the Janam Saki twice. And it's really interesting, and it goes to what I was saying earlier about how popular Bala was as a character. So when you read um, the introduction to the Hafizabad, um, lithographed um, and edited uh, edition by McAuliffe and Professor Gurmukh Singh, and you read Paivir Singh's account in, in his Puratan Janam Saki, um, both of them say that when they were exposed to um, Trump's translations, the versions without by Bala were unfamiliar. Hi, I'm Sukrat Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 55th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Hatajit Singh Garewal, who is a professor of Asian Religion and Sikh Studies at the University of Calgary and Comparative Literature Courses at McEwen University, and his PhD thesis was titled Janamsaki. Networks of Interpretation. And so today we will be discussing Janamsakis, specifically their origins, their significance, and their role in Sikhi today. In addition to that, we'll also explore what purpose they served, their mythical dimension, and also the role of Paivir Singh in modern Sikh reading practices. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Harjit Karewal? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll, I'll give uh, a bit of a you know, kind of personal mix with you, academic kind of answer to this. <laughs> so um, I was. Um, and am uh, someone who lives in, in Canada. Um, I was born and raised here. Uh, so my connection to um, Sikh studies really kind of, I think, comes from um, kind of a diasporic perspective. Uh, I became really interested as a young um, child in the tradition. I was also interested in religion in general. But um, when I was going through uh, university, studying uh, specializing in molecular genetics at the time, uh, I 
was taking humanities courses, uh, I would overload my course load and uh, take as many humanities courses as I could. And through my conversations with um, professors in anthropology, history, Asian studies, uh, that I learned that there's actually something called a uh, Sikh study. So I wasn't aware of this. And I think that's still indicative of um, today. I don't think a lot of people, although the, the field has grown and, and I think awareness of it has increased substantially since you know, I'm talking about um, 1998 uh, in, in, in my kind of personal trajectory. And I think today there's a lot more awareness of it. But at the time, I didn't even know what this was, um, but I saw, um, based on the advice of professors, that there's a route here into academic research um, that would give me an ability to contribute to academia, but do so from something that I was intimately connected to in, in kind of a personal way as well. And so that kind of was the road to my, um, you know, seeking this out. I went over to University of British Columbia and studied uh, after graduating with the BSc, I went and did a BA and an MA. And MA was an opportunity for me to um, start looking at the Janamsaki, something I still research today. And I went on and, and completed my dissertation at University of Michigan, which was uh, the dissertation uh, was completed in 2017. And since then, I've been teaching at um, University of Calgary in uh, the religion and classics department. And I also uh, had the opportunity to teach at uh, McEwen University in Edmonton, uh, where we live. And uh, I, I taught the world literature classes there. So um, my research interest is kind of, I already alluded to this, uh, is really based in uh, the Sikh uh, literary world, uh, most specifically right now uh, in the Janamsakhi literature. Uh, so I'm working on a book um, called Janamsakhi Literature and Sikh Epistemology, Narrative, Allegory, and Thought in the Sikh Tradition. And um, I have a side interest in kind of um, diasporic cultural studies. You, you can think of it in that way, um, how Sikhs engage in pop popular culture in diasporic settings when they're living outside of Punjab, which is quite regular um, and common today. And so I'm working on a project co-written with uh, my wife, Sarah Hakeem Gurewal, uh, entitled uh, Dislocation, Deterritorialization, and Diaspora in Sikh Hip-Hop, uh, the varieties of Sikh experience. So we kind of look at how um, hip-hop um, and the way that Sikhs use and engage in hip-hop uh, as, as a youth popular kind of genre um, reflects um, something about um, the diasporic experience uh, and, and kind of understand self-understanding like that in that project. So that's kind of what right now uh, I'm doing academically and um, that's how I got here. And what was your PhD thesis on? The PhD was also on the Janam Sakis. So the, the, the book is an, the first book I mentioned, the Janam Sakis Literature and Sikh Epistemology is an evolution of the book or of the dissertation, I mean. And just before moving on, beginning with the fundamentals, what are Janam Sakis? Yeah, right. So this is a great question. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, before I went and, and studied uh, at UBC, you know, I, Sakis and Janam Sakis are things that I think, you know, we as kids, as six growing up in Sikh households, hear all the time. Um, so they are the kind of anecdotes and stories about Guru Nanak and his life um, and the kind of examples uh, that he set for us as Sikhs. Um, so I think, you know, very many... Um, 
people are familiar with these stories. They just don't know that they're, um, you know, kind of in these compendiums, these collections. And the compendiums are what the Janam Saki actually refers to. A Saki is kind of an individual anecdote. So, um, you know, like um, the Babine Makkah Feria, you know, so Guru Nanak at Makkah um, is a Saki. Um, that anecdote is found in Janam Saki manuscripts. So they're compendiums um, of, of a bunch of different Sakis. It also includes um, another genre or subgenre, rather, uh, called goshtis or dialogues, uh, where uh, the difference there is that um, the primary focus in a goshti is a kind of intellectual dialogic exchange that Guru Nanak had with uh, another personage, um, historical, most typically. And and those are a little bit different, and those aren't as common in terms of the folk um, kind of oral tellings and what we hear as kids, because um, they're usually a little bit more detailed and they go into kind of um, things that might be considered uh, a little bit more abstract or intellectual. And would you be able to offer some examples, maybe some of the significant ones? Right. So I think one of the, one of the, I just mentioned the one where, um, you know, Baba Nim Makkah Feria, so the story of Guru Nanak going to Mecca and, um, the Ghazi or, or the Sheikh of, uh, Mecca coming and, um, objecting to the position of Guru Nanak's feet, trying to move them and the Kaaba moving in the same place as his feet are moved to, uh, is one example. Um, there's, that's just one part of a whole series of sakis that come from his time in Mecca. Um, but it's the most popular. We can kind of recognize that, I think, as kids. Another one is um, Malik Pago Saki, where the um, ruler of this town invites Guru Nanak. And um, Guru Nanak is going to be fed there, but he objects to it. Uh, eventually, he does go there. And we have the story where Guru Nanak um, holds two rotis and um, blood is coming out of one and milk is coming out of the other one. So that's another another one that's quite popular. Um, there's other ones that are Sapti um, Shah, right? So the, where Guru Nanak as a child um, was asleep and um, one of the, the ruler of the, the town that he was living in um, finds him asleep, but there's a cobra that has the hood open to kind of protect him from the sun and provide him shade in, in the kind of uh, afternoon heat. So those are kind of the typical, um, you know, those are the sak- those are sakis, but they're also the level at which we're kind of taught, um, taught these as kids um, when we're hearing them from our parents. And is it true that Janam Sakis can be categorized into four main groups or themes? That's right. Yeah. So, so there are, um, there's been, I suggest to kind of frame your question a little bit. There's been an academic debate about the Janam Sakis. And I think that kind of follows forward really nicely from the examples I gave. Um, as, uh, you know, the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, with partition, um, you know, a lot of the new universities are set up in Punjab. And around the time of Guru Nanak's 500th birth anniversary, the Gurpur, a lot of intellectual um, energy is directed to the Janam Sakis, obviously because of Guru Nanak, Gurpur's uh, coming up. So they spend about 10 years researching the Janam Sakis and uh, kind of 
that's where the codification in terms of the traditions you were just mentioning here um, starts to happen. People start to, just like we see much earlier uh, with, um, you know, religious founders like Jesus, um, this kind of uh, question about the historical Jesus, um, scholars start to look at the Janamsakis and the manuscripts and they start um, asking how much uh, we can know about the historical life of Guru Nanak from these texts. And so that um, question really sets up the type of a codification you're just mentioning. Um, because there are differences, when they go to the manuscripts, they realize that there's, there's internal variety and diversity in, in these manuscripts. They're not all the same. And some of the bigger differences are flagged, and those are, those are um, turned into traditions. Um, and the name of those traditions, uh, the first one is the Puratan Janamsakhi. A second one, the Bala Janamsakhi. There's the Ad Sakhya, uh, the Meherban Janamsakhi. And there's actually an, another one uh, uh, doesn't get mentioned as much, but I think it's important to include uh, by Mani Singh's uh, Janamsakhi as well, um, more popularly um, or academically. <laughs> I don't know how popular academics are, but um, more, more kind of academically also referred to as the Gyan Ratanavali. Right. And so those are kind of um, the Janamsaki traditions as we know them academically. But again, that is not in any way reflective of how the community interacts with these things or knows them. Um, by and large, um, as going far back into time as um, the 17th, 18th centuries, um, the Bala Janamsakis uh, with the characters of by Mardana, but by Bala as well. So Guru Nanak's two kind of childhood companions who accompany him on much of the Sakis. Um, by Bala's presence or absence um, is noted in these traditions. The Bala Janamsaki says, um, the, those are the Janamsakis that include Bala. That by and large is the most popular. Um, there's the most numerous. Uh, and that's typically... Uh, up until very recently, um, as we move into the 21st century, this debate is still going on. Um, Bhai Bala's inclusion uh, in the Janam Sakis is, is kind of the way we know the Sakis as well. So we hear about Bala in many of the Sakis. And when it comes to Janam Sakis, what kind of historical timeline are we in? Because I believe most were written after the death of Guru Nanak. Yeah, so there's different ways to look at this, and it's, it's been part of the debate. Um, so one of the major ways to look at this has been kind of philological looking for dated manuscripts uh, or manuscripts with authors. Um, that's a bit of a challenge, um, but there are, are numerous um, Janamsakis that are dated. Uh, in the beginning, the conversation largely was um, looking at the Janamsakis um, positing a timeline around 1650s, right? So it would be, um, you know, substantially after Guru Nanak passes away, right? And more kind of towards the latter portion of the Guru lineage as well, right? Um, more recently, though, the date has been pushed closer and closer to Guru Nanak's actual lifetime. Um, so there is a um, Janam Saki compendium. It's known as Saki Mele Peleki. So Mela Pella is a way of referring to uh, Guru Nanak, and most specifically, you see that in the Guru Granth Sahib. So um, 
that's where we see uh, a date closer to um, the life of Guru Nanak and most probably within the life's, lifetime of the second or third Guru. The other way to look at this is actually, um, so what academics have over the historical debate done was they discredited the Bala Janam Sakti because it had historical inaccuracies, um, miraculous accounts, etc., etc. And while it's, you know, um, within the purview of academics to raise these things as questions, um, the Bala Janam Sakti provides an interesting frame story for the same question you're asking. Um, it kind of gives us a story of Guru Angad who, you know, meets uh, Guru Nanak in the latter phase of Guru Nanak's life while he's living at Kartarpur. So this is after Guru Nanak's undergone all this, all the Odasis and comes back, um, all the main Odasis anyways, and has come back and settled in Kartarpur to establish a, a town. And Guru Angad comes there. And so the story tells us that Guru Angad was, uh, you know, when he's Guru and is living, um, as the guru, he is sitting by himself, kind of longing to know more about the earlier life of Guru Nanak. And, you know, uh, on the other side, the story tells us that Pai Bala, who was a childhood companion of Guru Nanak, was, um, had heard that Guru Nanak had passed away and was longing to connect with the community that Guru Nanak had established, um, the early Sikh community. And so what the story tells us is Guru Nanak, um, sorry, my apologies, Guru Angad um, and Bhai Bala uh, meet one another and he expresses, uh, they express their desires to one another. Um, Guru Angad tells Bala that um, he wants to know about Guru Nanak's early life and Bhai Bala wants to know about the latter part of the life that he missed out on. And that is the occasion as the Janam Sakis in the Bala version give us uh, for the very writing of the Janam Sakhi itself. So that again, if you think of it as a potential date, uh, would put it shortly after um, the passing away of Guru Nanakji and um, within the life of Guru Angad. So um, that actually, so what we are looking at in terms of these two things then is the date in the um, Sakhi Mele Peleki roughly uh, actually does line up with the frame story of the Bala. I think that's interesting in and of itself. So the debate has moved quite a bit um, in terms of that. We're looking kind of towards the early date of the Janam He's not a later one. And during this time, when they are being popularized, what is the significance of these Janam What value or purpose do they serve? Right. So, um, great. Another, another really good question. Um, again, this is something that scholars... Um, actively debating and I think you know for for me as um, someone who's really interested in this uh, my I'll give you my answer first um, my answer is that um, the Janam Sakis very quickly uh, get used in Gata uh, in in Sangit gathering so when the when the Sangit comes together um, we know in terms of Sikh practice um, and if, again, we can see this again pretty early uh, in the writings of Pai Gurdas, uh, in, in the Guru Granth Sahib itself, and also in uh, later uh, Rayatname, um, the kind of early codices that develop once the Khalsa is established, that um, people would, six were to do Nitname on their own. 
right? Um, and this was to be done uh, in the last watch of the night, so to speak, uh, the last beher of the night. And after completing uh, nitname, and this nitname is changing, you know, in the time of uh, Guru Nanak, it's a lot sh- smaller than it is by the time the Khalsa is established. Um, but after completing the nitname on your own, um, six were told to join the Sangit at the Dharamshala or later the Gurdwara, where they would um, listen to Kirtan, followed by Katha, and then go do Seva in the Langar and then proceed to the rest of their day. So that kind of, um, you know, then they come back together in the evening time and, and repeat this process. So the Katha part of it, um, I see the Janam Sakis important in that because I think that they are indicative of, and I was, I've interviewed um, even modern exegetes um, who say that this is exactly what they're designed for, their fourth Gatha. Um, so the early Gatha uh, is not what we understand today either. It is um, kind of a, so Gatha literally means um, telling stories. Um, and so the, it's the imaginative world um, that's being engaged in Janam Sakis. Um, but this is a world in the Sikh um, kind of epistemological um, setting that is not, uh, that isn't governed by the distinction between nonfiction and fiction that we accept so readily in modern times. So um, Janam Sakis were always based and, and remain historically situated in the life of Guru Nanak. And so there's historical um, aspects to them, but there's also imaginative things. And there's also intellectual things. Um, the Janam Sakis as an individual Sakhi uh, include uh, many references to the Guru Granth Sahib. And so part of my research has been looking at what is happening in terms of narrative structure uh, that the exegetes at the time or the, or the Gathavachiks um, who were potentially creating Janam Sakis uh, felt that they should include um, the long or short uh, quotes from uh, the Guru Granth Sahib. So in the modern version, we don't see these, we see them um, taken out and especially in the folk version as well, like kind of oral tellings we hear as children. Um, you don't see the same um, structure where there's a constant, um, in almost every Sakhi in a manuscript, there will be a reference to the Guru Granth Sahib at least once, often it's multiple times. So to me, that says it has something to do with Gatha. So it's explaining, um, it's, it's explaining the Guru Granth Sahib through a kind of storytelling landscape. And that kind of connects in my my understanding to um, pre-colonial worldviews within different cultures, um, Sikhi is one of them, that weren't operating on a um, way of thinking that we assume as normative today, which is is partly what I think is interesting in the literature itself. Um, Other people have kind of looked at them in, in different ways in terms of function and largely scholars understand um, uh, again, uh, earlier scholarship understands this as having to do with uh, community formation and kind of forming a community around the memory of its founder. So my work kind of takes a different trajectory um, by looking at this from a literary and a philosophical perspective rather than a historical one. I think we can get with uh, 
different and interesting answers from that perspective. Just returning once more to the timeline of the Jinnamsakis, I noticed they also run parallel in time to the scripture and formation of the Ardgrad. So were they also included or considered as part of that um, during its formative years? Right, right. So um, I think, so what we know in terms of, there's two ways to look at this. So the earlier earlier understanding uh, with the date in the mid 1600s, with um, the creation of the Ad Granth in the early 1600s uh, by Shri Guru Arjan, uh, alongside by Gurdas, um, what academics understood was that you have the quote-unquote scripture of the six um, established and there's a telos to this there's like a logical development that happens by Gurdas's vara which are often seen um, and included um, popularly and and traditionally by six uh, as containing janam sakis and, and those were then seen as some of the earliest janam sakis and then after that, um, you had the development of Mehrban's Janam Saki, which was a uh, rival sect at the time. So the narrative there was that the Mehrban sect created a rival Janam Saki in order to kind of, you know, include heterodox or apocryphal ideas. And shortly after, um, the Janam Sakis then became a point of contestation and they were written later to be correcting the issues that the Meherban Janam Saki had created, so to speak. So there's kind of this telos um, in terms of the development of the Janam Sakis in relation to the establishment of a canon, if you will, or a scripture um, by uh, Guru Arjan Sab. So, however, um, if you look at it in terms of the more recent research, um, having it in the early um, timeline, um, again, shortly after Guru Nanak's um, passing and the sh shift to the second or third guru, uh, this is interesting because just like you were saying, um, and I, I don't think too many people have um, kind of gone to this extent in terms of um, putting the connecting the dots, but Putting it back at that timeline shows um, you know, we have, uh, you know, scholarship by um, many scholars that have talked about the early bodhis that were um, passed down um, from guru to guru until guru Arjun creates uh, the Ad Granth. And those, those are still um, available for scholars to look at. So what this would suggest is that you have, um, a early kind of secondary set of literature that is including parts of the compositions of the gurus, specifically, um, most specifically Guru, Guru Nanak, but they do in the later ones include other um, Shabads from different gurus. Um, that's evolving alongside um, the expansion of Gurbani. And so again, to me, when, when I'm you know, thinking about um, the argument I was just suggesting, like what what are they? What is the purpose of the Janam Sakis then? Um, if they are developing in parallel, as it seems now with the more recent research, 
And I think there's more um, to kind of lean on in terms of the argument that these are indeed um, meant to, uh, at some level, explain in kind of a creative way rather than a theological way uh, in terms of like a, explaining the doctrine, right? Or simply explaining the Guru Granth Sahib, using stories to creatively explain um, Gurbani was happening very early. And and the Janam Sakis, again, being um, one of the things the Janam Sakis do is they describe Sikh practice. Um, there's a Sakhi from when Guru Nanak is in Sultanpur working as a Modi, where they talk about the life cycle, the life, the daily life of Sikhs um, and the connection to Guru Nanak's house. And that's where some of the practices I just mentioned about waking up early, um, doing Simran on your own, coming together, um, you know, singing, listening to Katha, and then going on to work. Um, it's written into the Sakhi itself. And again, those are in the Guru Granth Sahib. So the kind of connection between the practice um, and Katha, the specific practice of Katha, uh, I think is written into the Janam Sakhis themselves. And it connects to um, a way to explain uh, what the Guru Granth Sahib is about or what the writings of the Gurus, Gurbani, is about um, without having recourse to simply using uh, reason or rationality, which again, we assume as normative, but um, in the early modern and pre-modern kind of um, frameworks of many thought traditions, it wasn't the only way to um, think. And is there an idea or connection between the rates of literacy at the time regarding the employment of these Janamsakis? Say, for example, to proliferate the faith by spreading the message through storytelling. And as a kind of part two to that question, would that also explain some of the mythical dimension to them? Yeah, so uh, so again, like um, the... The connection in terms of literacy, uh, so it, it, you know, again, it's it's hard to determine uh, quantitatively in in any in any real concrete terms the extent to which a literacy, um, it, you know, was common, right, amongst especially um, rural uh, groups where we know the brunt of the Sikh tradition was growing, but. Um, Literacy in, in Punjab and in Northwestern South Asia is kind of, um, at this point, um, there's a few different trajectories um, that literacy exists in. There's kind of um, an upper strata of, of literati and academics, intellectuals who write in um, primarily uh, kind of in Arabic and in Sanskrit for um, you know, broadly conceived religious purposes. Um, there's languages of administration at the time, which would have been Persian. Uh, so the language of the courts uh, would have been a, a form of Persian. And then you would have had uh, a whole spectrum of languages, uh, which again, th there's such a number of different um, names that these languages are referred to. Um, there isn't a single uh, so even the idea of Punjabi, like uh, in in the fourteen hundreds, um, wouldn't have been the way we think of it today. Uh, there would have been kind of a, a spectrum around what's going on. So 
what the gurus, um, when they start using um, Gurmukhi, are doing in some level are participating in a process of vernacularization. So, um, which just means um, there's a shift globally um, that occurs over time where people start to use the languages that they speak commonly to write in. Right. So uh, again, just the example that I, I was giving here. Um, so in, in the context of Northwestern um, South Asia, uh, Arabic and Sanskrit wouldn't have been spoken a lot, <clears throat> but there are significant manuscript archives of um, collections of important works that were created by academics. Right. So those academics wouldn't necessarily have been functioning in their daily lives, um, speaking the language they're using in terms of literature. So it's similar to the way Latin was used in Europe, right? Uh, so the shift in, in South Asia, what happens, and, and the gurus are participating in this, um, is just referred to as vernacularization. It's kind of a, trying to use um, the common language. And some of that, um, you know, does have to do with the Sufis, as you mentioned earlier, um, because the Sufis do come into um, Punjab and the Northwest area a few centuries prior to Guru Nanak. And in order to teach um, to the people uh, in an everyday level, they do start to learn the languages and they start to create literature and poetry in those languages, right? And um, some of that, you could argue, has to do with the way that, um, you know, in, in those times, um, the way that Islam uh, as a religion and a worldview would have expanded um, because many um, would have understood implicitly that it was important to teach um, the principles of Islam, um, not just through Arabic, uh, which is clearly the scriptural language. Um, and in order to learn the scripture, you needed to know Arabic, but that the principles of Islam could be and should be taught um, in the language that the people themselves are familiar with. Um, so that's kind of really central to um, early uh, ideas of Islam. And, and it's kind of, um, I think, often missed in, in the narrative of what's going on in South Asia, which often tends to think about conversion in terms of um, more um, disruptive forms of conversion, although many scholars have contested that recently. Uh, so that that's one thing that's happening is that the language is actually becoming uh, the language of the people. So to connect that to what you're saying in terms of literacy, um, you can argue that amongst other groups like the Sufis and even Bhakti or or Bhagati, as we understand in Punjabi, um, the use of common languages, um, the vernacular languages. And the eventual development of those things into what we know today um, really does start in the time period um, in and around uh, Guru Nanak's life. Um, this is happening before and it continues to happen afterwards. So literacy in that sense is definitely increasing and evolving in this period. And it's changing to adapt to the needs of common people. Um, and I would say as well that one of the reasons why this change, I think, happens is that there is this atmosphere of um, diversity and exchange as well as competition between different um, groups and sects and schools. 
and they are vying for um, interest from potential audiences who participate in these worldviews. So definitely there's liter literacy is expanding in the scope of that. And Gurmukhi becomes a, a whole trajectory for that. Um, the later gurus are, um, by the time of uh, Sri Guru Gobind Singh Ji, we have, um, you know, in, in writing saying that, um, you know, I've translated this, for instance, so that the common people can understand um, the concepts and the literature that academics or intellectual or elite classes um, have access to. So, so that I think that connects literacy to a way to um, spread the kind of egalitarian ethos of the Sikh tradition. In, in terms of the mythology uh, you were talking about, there are, you know, the it's kind of the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of. <laughs> There's a lot of attention given to what, um, again, within a very Christocentric um, kind of scholarly perspective can be construed as miraculous accounts of um, something that's going on or a, a use of a miraculous narrative in a, in a Janam Saki. Uh, I, when you read the entire Janam Sakis, those are very few and far between for one thing. Um, but also I think that, again, with one of the things I was looking at in terms of the use of figurative language and things like that, um, so, you know, to give you an example, um, you know, we often when we, as human beings, when we describe something that's incredibly abstract, often have recourse to figurative language. So we use metaphor, allegory, sim simile, you know, we say it's, it's like this, it's as though it was that, 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 um, and, or we compare like just a road comparison with a metaphor. So you can look at, um, you know, you can look at theoretical physics and if you look at a theoretical um, physicist trying to explain something like dark matter, for instance, right, they're going to use um, allegory, simile and metaphor in order to communicate complex mathematical ideas that are factual, that are based in empirical reality through something that isn't, right? It's a shift we naturally do as human beings when we're trying to explain something. And I think um, there hasn't been enough attention because of the term, the negative sense the term miracle and the miraculous gets um, through the Christian tradition. It's, it has nothing to do with um, our tradition per se or or Indic traditions or what was going on in South Asia, early modern period around Nanak's lifetime, um, or when the time that the Janam Sakis would have been written shortly after, that people start to think about and are trained to be critical of the Janam Sakis through the colonial encounter. So to me, um, the idea that the miraculous parts of the Janam Sakis somehow delegitimate them um, or make them spurious or irrelevant um, needs to be squared with the way that Sikhs and other people in South Asia were colonized and retrained in English schools um, to use reason and rationality to criticize their own life views and acculturate or adopt um, Western or British worldviews. And again, we have um, ample data and scholarship that shows that this was a concerted effort by um, imperialists to kind of make 
um, people brown in skin, but um, English in thought, right? That's kind of the famous, famous kind of refrain. So to me, I think that needs to be dialed back a little bit and it needs to be decolonized, if you, if you will, like quote unquote. I know that's kind of a phrase that's thrown around too much these days. Um, but um, I think there's more depth to the miraculous. And, and to me, that's where the allegorical parts of the Janamsakis come into play in terms of how masters in people who had steeped and deep knowledge in the Guru Granth Sahib were able to bring up, um, again, kind of abstract ideas and embed them into comparative ways of expressing figurative language so that it's more readily available to us to understand. And when people are reciting or trying to understand Gurbani, there are many Shabbats that continuously refer to Guru Nanak as simply uh, Nanak, so Nanak this or Nanak that, right? And so the Janamsakis, are they there to bolster or explain the idea of who this Nanak was? Yeah, so, you know, there's two ways to look at this. I think that, that so this goes back to the kind of search for a historical um, personage or a character, right, that we can kind of latch on to, right? And that narrative I was talking about in terms of the development of community through a memory of our important historical founders, uh, the gurus, et cetera, et cetera. So Guru Nanak being the most important um, since the tradition starts with him. Naturally, you would expect people to look for that when they're reading um, Gurbani and things like that. I think, though, um, there was some level of understanding about this. And the psychology of, uh, you know, how a text and an author are disparate entities and they're kind of mired in the mind, uh, melded, if you will, in the mind of the reader um, in a kind of a perpetual struggle. So when we're, when we're reading any text, um, one of the things eventually we start to think about, um, and this is usually a second level or a second order kind of way of analyzing a, a story or, a, or any kind of, um, you know, even if it's just a intellectual exercise. First, we read the text as it is. Um, it, and if we don't understand it, if there's things that we are, we are kind of questioning um, or that we find quizzical, we often kind of think, well, what did the author want me to understand? when they wrote this, right? Um, and, and that comes from our personal struggle with the text itself. But what we do is we leap out of the text into this, what is ultimately actually an imaginary space, right? Because the author is not with us, right? The author is not available to us. And so we have to imagine, we project this imaginary space. It's not a factual space. Um, to say, well, what did the author intend for me to know or understand? If I, you know, and that becomes a way to project from imagination and send back to us our image, a real image of an author, a concrete image. But we're actually playing a mind game with ourselves, right? Because we don't have access to this author. And so we create this image and that becomes authoritative and then it helps us read this text. Um, 
one of the tools we have to do this collectively is history, right? <laughs> we can go out and find material, um, evidence, um, et cetera, et cetera, to build a narrative, a second order narrative, right? Um, so for instance, like if you, you know, like uh, Nietzsche's read writing is hard to understand, right? Um, so scholars have quizzed over this and thought about it. And so often what they do is they create a historical personage of Nietzsche and then they read it through that image, right? Um, Freud, Jung, et cetera, et cetera. It happens, you know, intellectual history, the exercise of intellectual history is precisely that, um, to build a second order body of texts, right? So if you look at the Janamsakis, um, some of that is going on, right? Um, I think that the, the people who were creating these texts were aware of our desires, uh, where the Gurbani is very difficult to understand, um, to kind of project into this space about, well, what did the person who wrote this want me to understand? Even if you listen to Kata today, right? Um, you know, Gurbani does not mention the Gurus by name. It, it mentions um, Mela, Pela, Meladuja, Melatija, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so we can infer the author, but they're not present. It doesn't say by Guru Nanak, by Guru Angad, by Guru Amardas, right? So I think what's going on in the text, in the Guru Granth Sahib itself, is a level of resistance to that desire of ours, right? Then it's, it's furthered by only using Nanak as the nom de plume, right, of all the gurus, right? On top of that, uh, you know, we, uh, we have the idea of Jyoti Jyot Samona, right? So the flames coming together, one Jyot touching um, another wick and lighting them and, you know, then separating, but in essence being one. That is the idea of being the next guru was that Jyoti Jyot Samona happened and you essentially were Guru Nanak, right? Uh, the next level of that is that that happens between a Sikh and Gurbani. The Gurbani actually lights our joy, right? Um, and, but the text is a static, arguably a static, you know, in terms of modern understandings, a static medium. It shouldn't, um, in, you know, be able to do that as a person would perhaps, right? So these are, so these are some of the layers of this, right? And so when it comes to, the Janam Sakis uh, and the way they use Guru Nanak, um, I think they are playing with our desire to be able to stabilize an image of the Guru. And they are trying to redirect that desire through these figurative usage of language, which in and of themselves, in some of the Sakis, as they're written, not as oral kind of stories passed on to children from parents, but in the written form, uh, do become quite complicated and, and can be confusing uh, to read. Um, so the, the idea there is to embed the Gurbani, the epistemology of the Gurbani, and redirect you from your mental projection about, I need to know the Guru. The Guru is Gurbani. Um, that's what we're taught. So if the Guru is Gurbani, it's natural that the literature created by experts in Gurbani would be deflecting our desire to attach to this material world 
the material world where our home wants us to go to, right? Um, and redirect it to Gurbani, which ultimately is what the gurus um, were trying to teach us, right? And, and Gurbani as, as our guru is trying to teach us, right? So to me, this is more sophisticated than it looks. It's not so simple as saying, well, this story is miracle, miraculous, so let's cut that out. Um, you know, and if, if we remove that and we remove, um, the Gurbani or we reorder the Gurbani in the way we think that, you know, um, like the Patti Shabad, uh, you know, like, um, did Guru Nanak as a young child actually write that? Um, that's been asked, right? Um, and so we try to rationalize these things, right? And if, if it wasn't, then should it be there? Um, if it shouldn't be there, let's change the story, right? We are exerting our own Ra rationalizing forces over texts that were written perhaps for different purposes, right? And then thereby actually uh, conducting a kind of um, violence to the way that people can sub subsequent to our moves of editing them, interpret those very texts because we change them as we do this, right? And so to me, that's where um, some of this kind of comes in, in, in the way that the authorship and the, and the characters, you know, being Guru Nanak, um, kind of come into this and need to be questioned a little bit in terms of what the presentation was actually for. And I know you have also written about the modern editorial processes when it comes to Bhaivira Singh. Can I now ask you about the impact he has had when it comes to the Janam Sakis in relation to what you have just described? Yeah, so during during the course of my research on the Janam Sakis, um, you know, the main thing that actually compelled me to look at the Janam Sakis was the question of diversity. Um, we, we know at some level, and we celebrate this, that Sikhism uh, or Gursikhi is a pluralistic, diverse uh, tradition. And yet it doesn't square with, it often doesn't square with the way we um, conceive of it in the written aspect. How we describe the tradition sometimes can look kind of monolithic to uh, an external reader, for instance, you know, you might get asked the question, well, it doesn't look like this is um, diverse. Like what is the way of being sick? And so, so the Janam Sakis to me, since they're very early in terms of literature, were a way to explore this question. And it got me interested in the colonial period, as I was talking about in, in some of the earlier um, answers I gave in terms of, well, how does this become constrained and start to look like a single, um, life world that has or or the diversity gets constrained at some level how does that happen and so that got me interested in the interaction between uh colonial administrators and um some uh singh sabha reformers or or just kind of towards the end also of the reform movement and some of the changes the reform movement was experiencing and so when I looked at that, uh, the two, the Janam Sakis that we know today in the Bharatan tradition, uh, the Colebrook Janam Saki and the Hafizabad Janam Saki, um, they, uh, are discovered during the, just before, uh, in the late 1800s, uh, just before the 1900s come on. But, uh, it's really the printing of, um, the odd sak, the odd, Grant uh, by Ernest Trump, and this is described actually by 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 Virsi. Um, the translation and uh, of the Ad Grant um, 
and his use of the Janam Sakis in the beginning material for his translation, he translates a Bala version, which he found, and he has uh, was the was given what now we know as the Colebrook uh, manuscript, which didn't have um, Bala in it. So he translates the Janam Saki twice. And it's really interesting, and it goes to what I was saying earlier about how popular Bala was as a character. So when you read um, the introduction to the Hafizabad um, lithographed um, and edited uh, edition by McAuliffe and Professor Gurmukh Singh, and you read Paivir Singh's account in, in his Puratan Janamsaki, um, both of them say that when they were exposed to um, Trump's translations, the versions without Baibala were unfamiliar. And so that's kind of where, you know, the, the questions about the true tradition, um, the original tradition, um, the right way to be sick, et cetera, et cetera, start to kind of creep into um, the sick mindset, right? And one of the ways that's happening, and this doesn't get commented on, um, you know, we know the popular kind of lived version of this. You know, there's a way to be sick, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the way that this happened in literature and the changes in literature are less studied. And so it's actually through um, what I argue is that it's actually through the process of editing um, the Hafizabad Janam Saki first, but more specifically um, by Veer Singh's edits to create um, from the Colebrook and the Hafizabad manuscript, one uh, authoritative uh, Puratan or original or the oldest, right? Um, Janam Saki, therefore the most authoritative, the most representative of Guru Nanak, and the most emblematic of what six should be, right? Uh, edition of this Janam Saki. So the editing process then becomes really interesting. I started looking into that and I think that what is going on is that in the course of this um, kind of early 20th century and the impact of what we were just talking about in terms of um, Anglo-centric education, uh, trying to create uh, an elite class as a buffer um, between the British and, um, you know, the, you know, everyday, let's say, um, Punjabi people, right? Uh, and use that buffer to give them information, act as native informants. The process of changing uh, the Janam Sakis starts to happen uh, in order to relate to the expectations of that educated class. And you can see that in, in both. Um, by Veer Singh's and the earlier um, prologue to the Hafizabad in kind of exhortations to the reader to read even what they have produced critically, right? And to read them, uh, you know, with criticism, circumspection, et cetera, et cetera, uh, skepticism, uh, and delineate for themselves what is authoritative, right? Yet the, yet the, the one thing that is missed is that you're not telling the readership, I've already changed this and I'm not giving you access to the original manuscript. So if you had access to the original manuscript, it'd be different to say, well, you determine for yourself, right? Here's my criticism. I haven't changed the text. 
Uh, what's going on with the edits is that the text is actually being changed. Things are being removed. Um, and sometimes entire sections are taken out. Or even um, Shabads from the Guru Granth Sahib that um, were there uh, get corrected, quote unquote, right? To what Paivir Singh, again, imagines that the author might have actually meant, right? And it goes back to what I was saying about this, we create an imagined author who is trying to, in the 20th century, what's happening is the imagined author was trying to write a biography of the historical Nanak, and he made an error that we can correct because we can also, you know, through our own reasoning and rationalizing capacities, also think about the original Nanak as a, as a mental exercise, right? And we can align and compare the book with this projection, right? And then we would change the Janam Sakhi in accordance with what the correct uh, Guru Nanak was. But we uh, allude or we don't announce the fact that that is not empirically or factually, neither the imagination that the author has, the original kind of author of the Janam Sakhi, or the imagination that the editor is using, um, by Singh in this instance, neither of those allow us to fully know, quote unquote, who or what Guru Nanak was, because we're separated in reality in time from that historical person. We never will know, right? Because um, we don't live in that time. And neither does that person live in our time, right? So what's happening with the Janam Sakhi then is through what I argue is what's happening is there's an alignment from and a shift from kind of what originally looked like kind of dialogic texts that were meant, again, most specifically to be engaging a Sangat uh, on the one level, right? Uh, and were pedagogical tools, arguably, uh, pedagogical literary tools uh, to engage Sangat. Or on another level, um, if you were going to train students and keep the tradition going, they became uh, tools, again, for, uh, you know, an expert to teach and pass on what they know to the student who then would go and do kata in different locations, et cetera, et cetera. So that part of it is changing. And the reading, the way to read is changing where we read on our own, Right. So the practice of reading by by oneself and using uh, your capacity of mind as the place where dialogue is happening, the dialogue actually happens between you and the text is new, uh, I argue. And that's something that Paivir Singh introduces. And some of the changes he introduces align the Janam Saki with these things um, by changing and making it look like it's more historically accurate. Um, but you actually lose some of that um, actual dialogic, um, which is still going on. Um, the kata is still happening. Um, but I think what's over time up to our day, if you go into any gurdwara and listen to a kata, first and foremost, you probably will notice that the kata vachik is trying to be historical. The, the way that Kata is done now is through the authority of history. Uh, you are listening to history. You're not listening to a story 
or a telling. Gata can just mean a telling of something, right? Uh, or an interpretation of something, right? Now, now we listen to a historical account, right? Um, and often we are listening and we're not engaged dialogically. Um, nobody questions uh, what the person is telling us. And we don't learn that way. We learn, we learn monologic, whether it's through the text as a medium and our engagement, our own personal engagement through our minds, or whether we hear and interpret silently um, what's being told to us as kata. So that shift, I think, um, in, in, in that paper you're referring to, I, I kind of put that as it's a transgression uh, intellectually from what should be a philological exercise or trying to understand what the text is in its entirety um, and a philosophical exercise, which is actually trying to understand or change or evolve ideas. And the line there is precarious, but because by Biersing is a man of his time, when he tries to edit the text for a contemporary audience, he actually undergoes this kind of transgression and philosophically alters some of the epistemes uh, through the editorial changes he's introducing. So mm -hmm. I, what I'm trying to say there then is this doesn't need to be on purpose or conscious. It's because of the, it's because of the moment in time and aligning these things um, to what, uh, you know, is the structure of his day, right, uh, which is colonialism. Can I ask you now about the legacies of that all um, in terms of how we understand and interpret the Janamsakis today? Yeah, and so I think this is one of, you know, again, like when the nice thing to look in terms of retrospect, and, and again, this is, you know, to validate the historical process is that you, you know, you look back and you think, um, you know, what are the legacies of this? And the legacies, I think, are, you know, it, it has taken that um, process has, I think, radically changed the way we interact as a community. And the way we learn about our our most central texts, and the way we project ourselves in the world. So I think the the legacy is quite large. I mean, and it's not to say or to pin everything on five years. And that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, that he's just a person amongst many who started engaging in this debate. I'm um, saying historian um, does so later, and we have a whole bunch of people after that um, coming into this. Like I mentioned. Um, most specifically in the 60s, right? Um, so it's just that he was one of the earlier people that it becomes interesting. Um, what that's done, I think, in terms of, you know, how we interact is that we are more and more separate from our textual traditions and we are less likely to accept uh, the traditions as they're received. Right. And we're more and more likely to want to have the tradition um, work in accordance with our own expectations. Right. Um, whether it's our collective uh, expectation as a community or whether um, I think what's interesting is more and more you're seeing amongst youth these days is um, not even uh, a desire for the collective or the community uh, understanding. It's more of a uh, personal or individual understanding. It's what I want this to be. It's my experience. It's my engagement. I understand it this way. 
it's valid because I understand it this way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, when I was younger, you would have heard more like, we need to understand it this way. It's valid when we think it's this way, right? Um, so there's, there's kind of a, I think, uh, kind of slow creep into, uh, what is really set up in colonialism, which is to radically change the Sikh tradition and align it with Western or well, not just Western, but imperialistic norms, um, use religion to rule people rather than um, the kind of social vision that, um, you know, arguably uh, is embedded in the radical kind of egalitarian, uh, equitable, plural uh, social vision that the gurus and the pagets and fakirs uh, would have um, in, in the Gurbani themselves uh, written, right? Um, and so, so I think that shift is palpable and the, the legacies of that, I think is, uh, you know, one of the things that, I, one, one of the kind of best put versions of this is, I think we're living in the legacies. Uh, there was a comment made to, um, Garam Singh historian by Gyanigyan Gyanse, and it was, it was about, a draft of Katak Kivisak, a, a book that um, Karam Singh historian writes, questioning the date, uh, the two dates that are given for Guru Nanak's birth, but really winds up being a whole um, kind of uh, discussion about the authenticity or the reliability of the Sikh uh, literary canon, and especially the Janam Sakis. And so what um, Gyani Gyan Singh says is that he congratulates him for his use of reason. He says, you know, you young man, you've done a great job. If, if you think that the use of singular reason um, can help you understand these texts, I salute you. You've done a great job in terms of that exercise. He uses the word tarak, right? Um, then he gives a warning, though. He says that um, he does not agree with Karam Singh historian. Uh, and he says that you should be very careful when challenging um, texts that have been accepted by, um, you know, uh, intellectuals and the Sangat um, for many centuries. And that the singular use of reason in his mind is questionable for the Sikh tradition in its entirety, that this isn't the way to try to understand the tradition or its texts. And then he says to him, um, these were things that people agreed upon over the course of time, and they were settled over disagreements, etc. So, you know, again, we see that in the manuscript archives, there was contestations, the ideas developed, etc., etc. So he says these have already been fought over and they were settled. And to resurrect that um, is, is only going to lead to more discord and more problems amongst the community and the way that Sikhs interact with other groups. And so he kind of gives a warning. And I think that if you look at our contemporary times and the type of history that we've lived um, in the 20th century, Again, not to say that this is solely because of a change in the text, <laughs> right? That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but I think that the, the connection between, um, the way we, the way we live in the world 
and how we interpret our texts has changed so radically that um, you know we we some of the issues that are forefronted in the community are things that disrupt and um, destabilize the community and they cause discord, which arguably, again, if you think about, um, again, so if you go back to Pai Gurdas and the way he describes the purpose of um, Guru Nanak's life and Guru Nanak's birth, he says that Guru Nanak was born, this is in, in the first bar, um, that Guru Nanak was born into a time of division, violence, discord, no religion could agree with one another, et cetera, et cetera. And the Guru Nanak's point um, or purpose was to stop that and bring people together. So it's interesting. Again, I think that there was a time where the Janam Saksis might have been acting to facilitate that, facilitate people coming together, right? And I think what by, uh, sorry, Gyani Gansing uh, in, in the, again, just after um, the 20th century is kind of saying to Karm Singh Historian, and the kind of, you know, expansion of Western, um, you know, Anglo-centric uh, imperialist kind of thinking is um, like, hang on a second, young man, like th this might be exciting and new to you, uh, this type of methodology, but you may not live to see or realize the impacts that this can have. And again, there almost, uh, I think today, um, there is not one single text that uh, the community hasn't questioned. Um, and I think that's, that's disruptive and, and um, you know, causing discord amongst the community. And, and so I think there are connections between these things and, and we, should, we should pay attention to that. And just before we close, can I now ask you for a final example of Asaki where the question isn't entirely, you know, just historical. What I mean to say is, how would you interpret Asaki to learn its importance, if not the historical dimension of it? How and why should it be meaning for us today? So I think, um, again, because they direct us back to the Guru Granth Sahib, um, they can, for one thing, enrich our ability to read and engage with the Guru Granth Sahib, uh, which is important in and of itself, right? Um, how they do that um, is is another question and and an important one to think about. And one of the things I think they do is that they uh, make us aware if we read them carefully and not just with um, skepticism or uh, through a critical kind of or a lens of criticism, rather not critical but critical criticism. If our goal isn't to criticize them and we read them carefully, we can often see. Um, the kernels of the egalitarian creed and ethos that the gurus are trying to teach us, right? So I'll give you an example, uh, one that I'm, I'm working with um, in, 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 in the book is that of, uh, and it's one of my, you know, I, I've always enjoyed this Saki, is the Saki of Sajjan Tag. So Sajjan Tag um, it's one of the, in, again, in the, in the kind of sequence of the Janam Sakis as they occur in the manuscripts, um, most typically this happens just after Guru Nanak and Pai Mardana have left Sultanpur. Um, you know, 
Guru Nanak has kind of a um, kind of radical, you could say, religious experience of the divine or of, of the light. Um, he sees Nirankar or Barbram um, and encounters it, right? And and then he he goes on to do the, uh, the Udasis. One of the first pe- people he meets is this individual named, uh, or or we as we read it, uh, is called Sajjan Tag. And so he uh, is described as, so the term Tag means thief and the word Sajjan means friend. So it's kind of a, you know, the, the name itself is a contradiction, right? The, the, the friend who is a thief, right? Usually we don't, <laughs> we wouldn't say, you know, um, someone who's a thief is, is a friendly thief or something like that, right? So there's a kind of a contradiction in the term itself, in the way his name is understood. Um, and historically, uh, what the Saki tells us is this is the place where um, the first Taramshala or the first kind of Sikh institution is established uh, by Guru Nanak. The Taramshala has eventually uh, evolved into the Gurdwaras as we know them now, right? Um, so, or, or like other kind of teaching institutions that were, were in the, in the, in the, month at different times so what the story itself is is about is that they come in um guru nanak and Pai Mardana come to uh, see sajjan tag's house and they're they need a place to stay so they they go and and they're hopeful that they can you know it's a large house so they hopefully they can kind of have a place to stay there uh the story describes kind of sajjan tag from there as somebody who is quite clever and he um often invites guests into his house and he tries to determine from their look uh, whether they are Hindu or Muslim. And so Hindu and Muslim are terms that are challenged and questioned um, in terms of their function in society uh, by the gurus and in the Guru Granth Sahib as well, right? And prior to this in the Sakis, um, after coming out of that um, radical moment uh, or encounter with um, Nirankar, one of the things that Guru Nanak is, is said to have exclaimed is, not koi Hindu, not koi Musliman, right? So that's a seminal moment in, in the Sakis. And you see a version of that um, in the writings of Guru Arjun, where he says, na ham Hindu, na Musliman. Uh, so there is a, a correlation there, right? Um, it, it does exist in the Guru Granth Sahib. And they come in and he's trying to determine, because that's what he does, tries to determine whether they're Hindu or Muslim. And he treats them very kindly and very hospitably in accordance to what he, who they, he thinks they are. So if they're Hindu, they're treated a certain way, again, treated very well. If they're Muslim, they're treated another way, and they're also treated very well. Typically, what they say he does then is he makes them very comfortable through his hosp- hospitality when it comes time to um, go to sleep at night, he takes them to their room and he actually, um, you know, uh, he murders them. He takes all their um, belongings, right, and discards the bodies in a well. And then it says he kind of very calmly the next day, uh, having done these terrible things, um, sits quietly uh, in his, uh, like, chair and awaits the next guest to come. Right. So the next guest is Guru Nanak and Pai Mardana. <laughs> right. So the story kind of goes on and it tells that he, he can't actually determine whether 
Guru Nanak and Pai Mardana are Muslim or Hindu, he's confused. And so he doesn't know how to react. And so what he actually does, um, rather than feeding them, rather than being hospitable to them, he becomes quite abrupt. And he's like, well, let's go to sleep. Uh, you know, he, he's, his uh, more nefarious action kind of gets, his desire kind of comes forward. He becomes anxious and more ready to want to kind of get them to bed so that he can murder them and take their belongings. Uh, he can't determine who Guru Nanak is, but what he does determine is he must be someone of great wealth, right? So again, that might, um, his anticipation for um, robbing them might be um, also in line with that. But the word wealth has different connotations uh, here. It can also mean someone of great, um, you know, kind of mental prowess and wealth, right? And, and again, Gurbani talks about individuals, uh, Gurmukhs, etc., who have these things, right? So the Saki actually then is, you know, he's trying to get them to go to bed. And it's actually Guru Nanak who says, well, you know, I need to do my religious prayers. And um, I will not go to bed before that. And so typically what, uh, this is kind of, again, an interesting moment because what, what Sajjan Tug would have done, if he thought you were a certain type of Hindu, a certain type of practitioner, he would have invited you to do your nightly practice before going to sleep. And again, kind of give you a sense that this guy's aware of what I do and how I live and therefore is one of us, right? And build that bond of familiarity. Same thing with Muslims, he would have had them do whatever they do at night in terms of um, their ritual uh, prayers, et cetera, et cetera, and then, and then done that. So it's interesting here that the position gets shifted and it's Guru Nanak who's the one who's saying, well, I will of my own accord do this, right? And that I will now tell you what I do. And what happens is Guru Nanak then recites a Shabbat, right? And the Shabbat has such great impact on Guru, uh, on Sajjan Tag that, and, and what Guru Nanak is saying in um, that Shabbat is that you can't just simply um, shine up something and like, like copper, you know, you've removed the tarnish off of copper or silver and shine it and place it there. Um, that doesn't mean that this is something, uh, a valuable thing or a valuable individual kind of. It's talking, it's kind of directing it to Sajjan Tag. And he understands that and he's moved by this, right? Um, he understands that oh, this is talking about me. And he kind of asks, uh, he, you know, he falls before Guru Nanak. He asks for forgiveness. Um, and then what, what happens is that Guru Nanak says that he can't be forgiven. Um, he has to actually tell him it's not for Guru Nanak to forgive anybody, right? That that is something that the creator does. So he says, well, what do you want me to do? Then I feel terrible. <laughs> right? And, yeah, right? and so, you know, I mean, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that way, but, you know, just to kind of make it colloquial. He's like, well, what, what am I supposed to do? I feel terrible, right? Um, and he says, well, what you need to do is, first of all, admit all the terrible things you've done, right? Second, anything you gained um, by doing these terrible things, you should give it away. Third, you should learn um, from me. And when you learn from me, I want you to establish a dharamshala and teach these teachings to people who come here rather than hurting them. And so that's how you get the first uh, dharamshala established. But what's kind of, if you, again, if you miss the, if you just focus on the establishment of dharamshala, you miss 
an entire ethical discourse. Here is a murderer, a serial killer who kills people based on uh, identity, right? And his knowledge of who they are in order to gain wealth, right? And, and then you miss the treatment of this individual by Guru Nanak, right? Uh, you know, there's no, uh, there's no kind of penalization. There's no imprisonment. There's no authorities involved. I mean, you know, this is in an empire, right? <laughs> um, there's authorities. There's, you know, people that this person could go to, right? Um, even just local village authority, right? Uh, and then if you, if you put it in that context, it makes it a lot harder to kind of puzzle out, right? Because again, in our moral landscape, uh, we're very quick to judge somebody, right? And so we should be judging Sajjan Tagas as terrible human being, and therefore he's worthy of punishment, right? Uh, he should be in jail. He should be imprisoned. He's, you know, somebody's killed and gained wealth because of this, right? And he becomes um, somebody who teaches six in the first establishment, right? Uh, so, I, I, and I, again, I, I don't have an answer for this. This is kind of like, I think we're six, should, we as six should be thinking about this, right? So then what does that do for us? It brings forth a whole bunch of questions about ethics, justice, punishment, right? Um, who, how, and why we live, right? Just in this little, just in this little anecdote, right? And so again, if you merely focus on the first, the historical thing is the first Dharamshala is established. And if that's all it is, it just becomes a, a data point versus this entire questioning that needs to be unpacked and thought about. And that's where the dialogue comes in that I was talking about. These are things where the Sangit, if it's, if it's engaged at this level, can then try to unpack and unravel. And then there's answers that apply to our society and the iniquities, the injustices, on the ethical quandaries that we come into our daily lives, uh, encounter in our daily lives, that we might be able to address um, because we've had some moment to think about these things with other people in our community. Well, thanks so much for that. Those are all the questions that I had, and I'm very grateful for your articulation today of the Janamsakis, from the origin stories to how we understand them today. So it was a real pleasure to hear so much about them in such detail and depth which I'm not sure why it's not more often they get that kind of attention they deserve. Yeah, and I, again, I think it's just part, that's the legacy. Uh, I think that's, that's kind of goes back to your question about the legacy. Um, we have become disparaging of our own tradition. And, and I think, again, that's part of the colonial project because if we disparage our tradition, where are we going to turn? We're going to turn to the Western canon, right? <laughs> uh, if it's not the Western religion, it's the canon that evolved after that is still tied to the religion. And so again, we effectively become, you know, kind of secular Christians, right? And we're, we're divested of our own, um, you know, kind of traditional understandings. And again, I, I don't think you can square, um, you can't, I don't think you can square uh, kind of an imperialist ethos with Gursiki. I think it's really hard to square those two things. And that's why there's always been tension um, between people who, uh, you know, uh, avowedly want uh, to 
um, bring forward something from the Gorsik tradition, from Gurbani, um, and and people who uh, want to kind of govern or control Sikhs, right? And and so you know, and and that causes, you know, that doesn't mean everyone in the Sikh community is going to be on one side or the other. Um, a lot of people are happy to be governed, <laughs> right? You know, like. You know, like we're happy to be governed and and you know be told what to do, uh, to participate in uh, economies, uh, to participate in et cetera, et cetera, right? Like um, society, uh, and and participate at at the level we're told to participate in, not as equals, but just to be, um, you know, people who resonate in a certain stratus, right? Um, and and that's familiar. Right, like we we like that, and I, I think again that's interesting with the Sajjan Tug story is that it disrupts all this stuff. He can't tell who this is, what what he's supposed to do. He doesn't know how to treat this person, <laughs> right? Um, you know, obviously this isn't just this person. This is Guru Guru Nanak, right? Um, and so it kind of shows the kind of you know there's something that happens to us when we're exposed to the Guru. And again, because Guru in Sikhi is Nam and a body, the Guru's embodied Nam, that destabilizes. The embodiment of Nam, when we see it, destabilizes us. And, and so, the, again, I think there's, there's a lot of sophistication in how these things are written. Um, that there's, they're working on this. Like, you know, there's awareness of what, we struggle with and how we do this and and how do you get people to tie into a radically egalitarian project and actually you know i mean you know people had to give up their lives in order to try to achieve a vision of sikhi right many people and and so how do you maintain that i think these these were tools and so it's interesting how as we become more and more colonized and i'm talking about modernity like now not <laughs> the british times but as we become more colonized we're more and more um willing to be critical of our tradition and less and less willing to be critical of a kind of the kind of you know the things that govern us every day whether it's knowledge uh whether it's institutions or structures right uh, we want to accept those right well, thank you again, Professor G, for coming on and educating us about Janamsakis of Guru Nanak. It's been really informative and I hope we can have you back to discuss more on another topic of your choice on Sikh studies. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Sikh Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.